For this week's episode of Small Shop Fundraising, I really dug into the questions and concerns that nonprofits had nationwide, and it it still seems to be around virtual events. So I decided to go local this week, and I'm talking to a prominent, well-known nonprofit in Louisville, Kentucky, called the Home of the Innocents. They switched their 1,100-person face-to-face event to a virtual one, and it was very successful. So we're going to talk to two of those folks right now. Stay tuned. Welcome, Lena Iwu and Taylor Huber. Thanks, guys, for being here. Yeah, thanks Thanks for for having having us. And Lena is the donor relations manager at the Home of the Innocents, and Taylor Huber is the development coordinator. And your all's job just recently was to take a pretty large size, and you guys will give us the details here in a minute, event, a face-to-face event, and, and flip it on its head to be a virtual event. So tell us about this event before you all, what I call, flip the switch. Well, thank you, Liz, for having us. Um, 2020 has definitely been an interesting year for Home of the Innocents, as for many nonprofits across the country. But, you know, we, in March, when this hit, we were very much in the throes of gearing up for our 2020 Heroes for the Home event. So um, in the past, this event has been our free breakfast where we secure table hosts and sponsors to fill tables of 10. They bring their guests really just to learn more about our mission. And then at the event, we do make a financial ask. It's only one hour. So we start at eight, it's over promptly at nine. We give away a Hero for the Home Award to someone who's been a champion for children in our community. And then we also share impactful stories from those directly impacted by the work that we do. So um, just to kind of give you some numbers, in 2019, we had 1,100 guests in attendance. So it's it's our largest event of the year, our biggest impact event of the year for sure. Last year, we secured $125,500 in sponsorships, and then we raised a net total of $219,000. Amazing. Now, And this is a free breakfast. You all use the Benevin model, is that right? We do, yeah. So um, we, it's a free breakfast. We really rely on our table hosts to invite their networks and bring their people in. And so that's how we get people in the door. When I started at the home in 2017, we had our largest breakfast that year and it was bringing in around 700 people. And then in 2018, we were able to increase that to close to, we had just under a thousand people and we were able to raise over $260,000 gross. Yeah, I mean, so this really for us, this is, our big focus. We used to do other smaller events throughout the year. Um, and then last year we stopped doing all of those other events so that we could put all of our focus and all of our effort into heroes because we were seeing that, you know, sponsorships were competing. Our, our, um, donors were kind of getting burnt out about bringing in their network. So we just put all of our focus into this one event. So you stopped all other events and really focused on this one for 2020, correct? Uh, 2019 and 2020. Yes. Okay. Okay. And you saw success by doing that on, in 2019. Yeah, I mean, it. our numbers grew significantly. Our, um, you know, our attendance grew significantly. So, yeah, it was a, 
it was a big impact. And we also saw sponsors who were more interested in this event because they were getting more exposure, you know, with those 1100 people in the room, they were getting more exposure. So they were more interested in putting more of their dollars into this event. So everything's going swimmingly, it sounds like, for the face-to-face event. You all have this kind of a new revamped structure of how you you focus on the events that you specifically have to raise money. And then 2020 happens, basically. So how far along in the planning process were you when March 2020 hit? Yeah, so we were pretty far along in our planning process. We had our venue secured. We had just put our menu in place, had our AB set up, and we were beginning the process of filming our videos um, when everything hit. So it really put us, of course, to a halt like everyone. So yeah, we were pretty far along in our planning process and we were about to start focusing more on you know securing those table hosts and that cultivation with our donors and sponsors to make sure that we filled the event after we had all of the other logistics secured. So the logistics were you found a new event space for and for in in our community in, in Louisville, Kentucky, finding a place that will hold 1100 guests comfortably for breakfast is not an easy thing to do and you won't have as many places to really to utilize, right? Yeah, I was going to say we basically had two options that we were looking at the venue that we had used last year, but then our CEO had challenged us to grow the event even bigger in 2020. And so um, in the summer of 2019, right after we hosted our 2019 event, we started planning for 2020 and were kind of faced with sticking with the same amount of people at the space we were using or trying to find a space that was bigger and really there was only one space in the city that would fit the capacity that we were looking for. Okay, so Lena, when March 2020 happened, how how far along uh, percentage-wise, I suppose, in sponsorship sales were you about? Um, yeah, so we had around... $90,000 in our sponsorship secured at that point, and about 70000 of those were paid. So, well, a little over half of your sponsorship dollars in place. So, so your sponsors knew there was going to be a face-to-face. They knew what to expect. They, that's what they had bought into. So how did making the decision occur to flip the switch to a virtual event? When did it happen, and who uh, was a part of making the decision? We had a team that included our CEO, our development team, which Taylor and I are both a part of, and then also our director of communications because she's very involved in the planning of the program for this event. And so we were all watching the situation. We had a meeting um, right after everyone was sent home to work from home because most of our team was sent to work remotely. And we had a meeting and at that meeting, we decided that we were going to make our final decision on April 7th. We were very, like, very far along, like Taylor said, in our planning. We had a lot of sponsors that we still hadn't heard from, sponsors who had already committed. And so our first step was just to communicate. We communicated and communicated as much as possible. So we reached out to pending sponsors, committed sponsors, committed table hosts, um, anyone and everyone, just to let them know that we were going to be making a decision by April 7th and we would keep them up to date every step of the way. We made that decision on April 7th. And unfortunately, at that time, Taylor was furloughed. 
I was cut back to part-time. So not only were we facing COVID and all of the stress around trying to decide if we were gonna flip our event virtual, but we were also short-staffed and it was hard to make a decision without our full team present. You know, um, in the past, this event has all been under one person. And this past year we brought Taylor on as the development coordinator. So she focused on the logistics of the event. I focused on sponsorships. And so without her there, it was difficult to make that decision as a team because she really represented all the logistics that Mm -hmm. had, you know, she had worked so hard on to make sure everything was in place for this event. We made our decision April 7th and then it was like, okay, well, what do we do now? You know, the decision was led by the staff. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and our staff was actually very divided on what the day should look like. So we had a couple people on our team who were all about having an hour-long Zoom event where we basically just kind of replicated our breakfast, but virtually. Mm -hmm. And then we had the other half of our team who wanted to do almost a giving day campaign. It took us a lot of time to really figure out what the day was going to look like and find a compromise that would work for everyone, not only our team, but also considering what our donors would want and what our donors would feel most engaged with. What were some of the reasons why you decided to do a virtual event? If you didn't have 1,100 people and there's only one place in the city to host such a large event, did you consider scaling it back so that you could incorporate social distancing guidelines? Did you consider uh, other possibilities that were in person outside of moving it to a virtual event? Honestly, we didn't because at that time, you know, in April, it was basically everyone needed to stay home. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so we were worried that if we even attempted any sort of in-person event, we would have very low attendance. People would be nervous and wouldn't really be focused on our mission. So our whole reason for going virtual was we thought people would still be able to engage. They could engage from the comfort of their own home and people were already gonna be home. So this was just something else that they could add to their to-do list for the day was right. watching our video. Right, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, they're, so, they're still, your event was when? It was June 11th. June, June 11th, okay. So even now in our state, there's a lot of anxiety about convening groups, even at 20, person event. So I think that's important for folks to, to know if they're out, uh, out of Kentucky. There's just a lot of anxiety, especially with large, large groups. And that goes throughout the country, right? So, um, and, and with the little information that we had as, as you all were planning in April. We had a transition so early in when COVID had just hit. We also, we had no idea what the future was going to look like and where we still don't know what the future is going to yeah. look like. We're kind of understanding a little bit more, but when it first hit and we had to decide what we wanted to do with the event, everything was so uncertain. So we just thought virtual would be the best option to keep everybody safe. Absolutely. So you've decided, the staff decided we're going to flip our event for 2020 to be a virtual event. Then what? Oh, the the big question. (laughs) So, what, what was your first step after you after you made that? That's a pretty big milestone decision to make. You know what I mean? Especially if you've not really done a lot of virtual events. Not many nonprofits do a lot of virtual events until this year. So what did you all feel was your first step? 
Yeah, so definitely the first step was to figure out how we were going to do it mm -hmm. and how we wanted the day to look. Uh, Lena can definitely talk more on this since she was in involved with more of the initial planning of everything while I was furloughed, but just researching different platforms that were out there that could help us have everything in one place for the event to make it seem like a giving day and kind of fit along those lines. Our first step was definitely a lot of research and figuring out how we wanted the day to look. You know, we, we tried to think through how can we best condense our program? So like really, so researching platforms, but then also figuring out how can we best condense our program so that we can keep people engaged. We didn't wanna go the Zoom route where we had an hour long event. We wanted something quick that people could watch in between. I'm a parent, right? So like at that time we figured people might still be parenting and teaching and working all at the same time. So we needed something simple and short that people could watch quickly. And so like figuring out, are we still gonna be able to do our video interviews like we had planned before? What will that look like? Communicating to people, finding the platform we were gonna put it on. So it was a lot of here are all the things we need to do. Here's what our day is gonna look like. Let's figure out the best the best way forward and we just kind of divided and conquered and so taylor came back i think middle to late april and so then at that point it was like okay taylor here are the decisions that have been made here are all the logistics that we need to do go for it and she took it and she ran with it you all decided that it wasn't going to be everybody sitting there in front of their computer for an hour pretending as though they're at an event but it's just happens to be virtual you decided to do a different route and what did that look like and did you involve volunteers yeah so the actual event day what the event looked like was we had a web page on our website that had our 15-minute video that was our most important parts of our program that we needed to include also on the page, there was a place to donate, to become a fundraiser. They could see our goal and the progress of our goal. We wanted to make sure that everything was in that one page um, that people could go to throughout the day. In the morning, we emailed a message from our CEO and chairperson of our board of directors to our entire database, all of our mission ambassadors, team members, sponsors, anyone on our board and committees a link of a link to the website so that they could watch the video and get involved we also made sure it was out on all social media platforms just so everyone had access to that and like lena's been saying you know we wanted everyone to be able to access it on their own time it's very unrealistic to think we could get a thousand people sitting down at a computer for one hour on right. a zoom call that never would have happened, never will happen. That kind of so, sounds miserable too, don't you think? I mean. Yeah, yeah. That, that would not be fun. No. No one, no one would enjoy that. The speakers would not enjoy that. So just making sure that it was still a welcoming video, people felt like they, that had been to the event, felt like they were still getting that same experience through the video. So you had a focal point, it sounds like, of about a 15 minute video that people could watch whenever or is that right yeah okay yeah so our video premiered on youtube at um, eight o'clock on june 11th and there the video was on the page so once it premiered 
it was live and it was ready for people to watch. And so that's still up on YouTube for people to go view, but we made sure that it was just always there for them. So they could have watched it as it premiered right at eight o'clock, but throughout they could go and access the video. We also um, changed the event a little bit. Instead of having it just one day, we had it run throughout the month of June. So from the 11th to the 30th. People, if they didn't get on there, they didn't see that email that day on the 11th, they could still go and watch the video on the 12th or the 28th, whenever they could. Did you feel like the extended time for people to engage in the virtual event was the right move? Or did you feel like it should have been shorter? Did people uh, like that? I feel like, yeah, I definitely feel like it was the right move. So we have our mission ambassadors, which... Formerly, were our table hosts. We just kind of changed that role a little bit. Um, and our mission ambassadors were people who signed up to spread awareness of the event, whether it be on their social media platforms or through emails or just, you know, text calls with their family and friends, just letting people know it was still happening. And those mission ambassadors had the option to sign up as a peer to peer fundraiser. Oh, okay. Where they could um, fundraise on their own with their networks. So by leaving it open for the month of June, I think really helped them be able to achieve their goals and reach their goals and really reach out to their networks. Um, so we Taylor, I have a question. Yeah. This is this peer to peer fundraising. It happens a lot with runs and things. Yeah. Is it something that you all had in your face to face event or is this specifically created this for the was... virtual event? Yeah, this was completely new. It was okay. created just for our virtual event. We hadn't done anything like it in the past for this event. A lot of our table hosts in the past have always been very interested in what their table brings in. Mm -hmm. They're very invested in who they are bringing and that they want to make sure that they are contributing and supporting us. Mm -hmm. So we thought we needed to give them a way that they could see exactly the impact that they and their networks are having. So this was the easiest way for them to see that and for us to keep track of it. So I think we had a lot of... I think um, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> really liked it, yeah. It's a really good idea. It, I mean, it's so it's something that people are very comfortable with because they've probably, if they're fundraising with table hosts, they've, they've probably done a run or something similar to that to where they've probably asked for money through Facebook or something. So it's, it's approachable. But it's, you're using it in a more non-traditional way for these virtual events that really are non-traditional in and of themselves. So that's, I think that's really cool. I had another question yeah. about your ambassadors. Were you able to recruit more ambassadors than you would have at a face-to-face -face event because you weren't restricted by capacity? So the funny thing is, actually, we had a total of 136 mission ambassadors sign up. Wow. And that was the exact number of tables that would have fit in our room at our venue. So it kind of worked out perfectly. I feel like if we had a longer time to recruit mission ambassadors and get all, everything figured out, we definitely could have exceeded that even more. And when we think of it in terms of people who shared and informed people about the event, it probably reached well beyond the 136 people who actually signed up as mission ambassadors so our reach was definitely much bigger than we could have had at a venue in a person in a face-to-face -face event 
Wow. Yeah, no, I absolutely, I could see that for sure. Okay, so we've talked about what the virtual event looked like and that you really, I just love the peer-to-peer fundraising and adding that to your virtual event. Sorry to cut in, but one thing I just want to share, Taylor shared that we had 136 mission ambassadors. Most of those, I would say the majority of them signed up prior to June 11th, but we actually had a number of people who signed up on June 11th to be peer-to-peer fundraisers. And I think that was really cool for us to see because going into June 11th, we were like, okay, we have this many mission ambassadors, this many peer-to-peer fundraisers, never dreaming we would get more. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you go into an in-person event, you go in with 125 tables and that's what you're going to have. Locked and, in, yeah. and you're locked in at that number. And you're lucky if all 125 tables show up, right? right? And so yeah. you have that glaring table in the middle of the front of the room that's empty and you're sweating. And so like seeing people sign up at 1030 on June 11th, we were thrilled to see that people were still engaging even though the event had already started. So having it open until June 30th, I think was huge for us because those people that did wait until the last minute or did wait until seriously nine o'clock at night to sign Mm -hmm. up to be a peer-to-peer fundraiser, they still had a chance to get our message out there. That's amazing. Before we go to sponsorship, I wanna ask, how did you all prepare for this brand new concept, basically, before the week-long event or even during? Did you all like practice? So we did not practice anything at all. So like a live event, we would have had our rehearsal the night before to run through the program and everything. But since we stuck to this idea of having a 15-minute video, everything was pre-filmed. So there really wasn't much practice. So we just made sure that our videos were ready to go. The message that we wanted to be in the videos was received and they were impactful and really showed everything that we do at the home. And then we also prepared a lot of communications with those people who signed up to be mission ambassadors. So we created a packet that had all the information that they could need on ways that they can get involved, how they can sign up to be a peer-to-peer fundraiser if they wanted to. We gave them templates of emails that they could send out. Um, So really just anything that they could have needed in that packet. And we also provided them a checklist as well that was a more condensed version of the packet that they could follow along day of. And then we also just made sure that we had our communications planned as well. Our communications team is awesome and they had an amazing social media campaign ready to go on scheduled posts that they were going to have. They did a Facebook live, just preparing kind of all of that on the back end before the 11th, making sure we had all of our plans in place for what was going to be sent out to um, our donors and our database and what we were going to post online to spread awareness of the event. So making sure all of that was ready to go. So it sounds like you had a lot of preparations with social media calendars and mm-hmm. communications between your team and, and the communications team. Did you have any other communications with other teams at the home? For those who don't know, the Home of the Innocent has a very large campus. How many people work at the home? Yeah. So we have over 600 team members. That includes full-time, part-time, and PRN. So so who else did you coordinate with uh, in regards to the to the event or the program? 
it actually kind of stays right in between development and communications on really coordinating everything. Uh Our CEO is very involved in this event and he plays a big part and big role in cultivation for it. Um, But looking kind of outside of that, our engagement team, there really isn't many other parts of the home that kind of help out on the part where we prepare for it and the planning. But we saw so many employees get involved this year that might not have been able to get involved in the past by setting up peer-to-peer fundraisers or donating the day of because they couldn't make it to the actual event in their schedule. So we did see a lot of team participation. That concludes part one of my conversation with Lena and Taylor from the Home of the Innocents. Next week, we're going to continue the conversation and really focus on the sponsorship development program and how they communicated with their sponsors on switching to a virtual event. We're also going to talk about successes and setbacks and, of course, my one common questions. Thanks for listening. See you next week.